Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 63 of the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show brought to you by the Change Your POV podcast network. On this episode, fellow mental health professional Tom Ayala and I have a conversation about his experience working with veterans in Oregon and some of the unique situations that he has seen in working with veterans in his practice. If by chance that doesn't happen to go well, it sets it up for what could be uh, considered um, involuntary defeat strategy, right? Which actually is a form of um, learned helplessness. Uh, but what happens is if it happened once, okay, tragic or whatever, bummer. If it happened twice, that's going to become incredibly impactful, almost like in a conditioning sense. If it happened three times, then do you see you begin to literally take on this involuntary defeat strategy, which is known to be one of the leading causes of depression. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes about veteran mental health. My name's Dwayne France, and I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After I retired from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set right, however, it was just a huge useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing isn't set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support veterans, service members, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Uh, once again, and as always, really appreciate you taking the time to learn about and listen to uh, conversations about veteran mental health. Uh, today we are uh, doing a live recording uh, on location, so uh, we really don't know what's going to kind of happen, uh, and, and we're just going to roll with it. But uh, my guest today uh, is a uh, mental health professional. His name is Tom. Tom Ayala uh, is uh, is a practitioner in Oregon, uh, and we're going to kind of get into uh, his story here a little bit. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's really an honor to be here. No, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to, to hang out. Uh, Tom and I actually met yesterday. We're currently in Atlanta at the American Counseling Association Conference. And, uh, and Tom and I met as part of the Military and Government Counseling Association uh, Development Institute. And uh, uh, Tom and I had communicated some. Uh, and Tom works with veterans uh, in a couple of different unique capacities. But uh, 
Before we get into that, Tom, I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit. Okay, very good. Uh, well, thank you, Dwayne. Um, my name is Tom Ayala, and uh, I'm a outpatient mental health clinician in rural Oregon. I uh, have been in practice for about 12 years now, and one of the things about my practice specifically is that I do see, uh, I believe, a higher number of veterans than maybe a lot of other uh, counseling offices or clinics. Um, one of the reasons that is is because where I'm located geographically is right between the Portland VA up in Vancouver and Portland, Oregon, and the Roseburg VA, uh, which is down, of course, in Roseburg, Oregon. There are a couple of uh, community-based outpatient clinics, CBOX, uh, closer to me than the main VA campuses, and they are in Salem and Eugene. And so I'm really right in the middle of all of that. And so tucked away uh, in the foothills of the west side of the Cascade Mountain Range are very many veterans. Um, I am a 60-year-old individual who is the youngest of six kids. My dad was in World War II. Uh, when I was growing up in middle school, um, Vietnam was going strong, and uh, I've always really had a strong appreciation for what veterans do, the veteran culture, and over the years I've really made a, a point of trying to understand it uh, as best as I can. So, and, and you said you've been practicing about 12 years, so how did you get into the mental health field in the first place? I mean, what was it that drew you to this, counseling? Okay, very good. That's an interesting story because at my age, I would have, it would have, I would have been done doing it like starting at 45 or right. whatever. So I happen to be an individual who has uh, the kind of genes where uh, I look very young. And so my dad, he lived until about 91 years old, and he looked about 60, so or maybe 75. But uh, so when I was in my 20s and I was getting a bachelor's degree, I was taking psychology courses and I considered being in counseling, and I just looked so young and had no experience. And so I, I really went and lived and, and got married and had kids and had careers and and got myself a real nice background of practical knowledge and, and lived experiences. Um, and so I, uh, one of the jobs that I had, uh, it was actually working for um, a contractor in the HP campus in uh, Corvallis. Uh, they downsized from like 15,000 people to like now today, I think about 1,200 people. And so I knew right then that I was going to go to college, and so I did, and I went to a, a private uh, university, um, George Fox University, it's well known in, in Oregon, uh, to get my uh, counseling degree. And uh, I did my uh, clinical internship at the Eugene CBOC, and uh, from there it was, it was uh, just a given that I was going to uh, never turned down a veteran when uh, uh, referred to my practice. And I'm proud to say that even today, to date, uh, that I haven't 
turned ever turned down a veteran. I've turned down a lot of other people who have other different kinds of insurance, uh, you know, Blue Cross, Aetna, Cigna, etc. Um, but my heart really has a pretty uh, strong affinity for the veteran population, and, and it means a lot to me. So uh, you were planning on, uh, as early as an undergrad, you were thinking that this was the career. It didn't work out. Um, you said that you were in middle school when Vietnam happened, obviously, uh, rec- and that made an impact on you as a young man. When you went back to school for counseling, did you anticipate that, was it focus on veterans? Did you want to go work with veterans, or is that just sort of how the internship happened? Um, it's sort of just how the internship happened. Now, my dad uh, he is a World War II veteran for 40 years. Um, I went to his World War II reunions, and that was every other year. Mm-hmm. And so I went to about 20 reunions where um, I've uh, seen so many of my long, good friends, my dad's friends, um, who are passed away now. Um, but that was a venue where um, pretty much everything that they never talked about to their families if you got the, if you found the right circle at one of those reunions mm. and got to sit in on that, you would gain a wealth of knowledge as to what it might have been like for them. Mm. You know, I, I can I can imagine that, especially uh, 20 years ago, you started to go, or or, or when you did, uh, but then you saw them age over time. Did you see a, a change in that? Like when when did you first start going to the uh, the reunions? Um, I remember specifically it was in San Diego and it was 1983. Okay. So that's about the time when really the Vietnam veterans started to, you know, the welcome homes, right? The mid eighties, Reagan said, we're finally mm-hmm. uh, bringing people home. Um, did you see a shift in the World War II veterans towards Vietnam veterans? Or did you see, was there much discussion about that? There was empathy. I think veterans are so connected just generationally. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much universality in anyone who has served that uh, they, they, it did get brought up and it got brought up in a way that made them sad that they weren't as welcomed home as they otherwise could have been. That the Vietnam veterans weren't correct um, received as, as well. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and I like that idea, too. Obviously, um, I've said before that uh, uh, I might have more in common with um, a, a Canadian veteran or a British veteran um, or an Australian veteran, somebody else who has served, than I might have with my neighbor who hasn't served. There is a universality amongst uh, uh, veterans, you know, and, and there is a, a lot more connection. Uh, and then as you saw that World War II population age, did you see things shift or or was there more of an acceptance of these kind of things, mental health or talking about military combat experiences? I never actually did see um, a wholehearted embrace mm. from World War II veterans that they would seek counseling or, or talk you know, uh, about some of the horrors that were their, their wartime experiences. Um, my, my particular, uh, it was the 307th Bomb Group um, which means that they had three squadrons, the 424, the 370, uh, and the 371. Those were the squadrons that were known as the Long Rangers. 
um, and they were in the Guadalcanal Theater um, in the South Pacific. Um, they were called the Long Rangers because they did the most furthest missions. Um, and uh, so along the same thread of generational uh, veteran perspective maybe is that what I have noticed over the years is there's a very intense um, sadness that the Vietnam vets have for the other newer Syria or uh, Afghanistan or Iraqi veterans because the, it just saddens them to know that here's another population of people who have had to go into um, an experience of, uh, you know, kill or be killed. No, and I think that's absolutely something that I've seen as well. Um, and I've said it often, but World War II, greatest <clears throat> generation, they came back. Uh, both of, two of my three grandfathers were in World War II. Um, you know, they didn't come doctors or, but, you know, one was a tailor and one was a mechanic and they built good lives around their family. So mm -hmm. it was, it was that sort of stoicism and we'll kind of put it, but they were, they were accepted, right? They were celebrated in many ways. Uh, then, of course, the Korean War veterans were forgotten. That was the first political kind of war, right? Um, then you had the Vietnam veterans and what they experienced, and they were reviled. And then the cycle begins again. So the Gulf War, the Gulf War I veterans, forgotten. Cold War veterans really feel like they're in that in-between a World War II and a Vietnam generation mm -hmm. between Vietnam and post-9-11. And now post 9-11 veterans, some of them are as reviled maybe as, as the Vietnam veterans. Some of them are celebrated as much as the World War II veterans, and some of them are forgotten. You know, so it's sort of a mix of all three, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's all sort of come in, in, in this one place. Have mm -hmm. you seen that in the veterans you work with? Yes, I have. I have in their own personal narratives of how they feel that they've been received home. Mm -hmm. Because I believe as a clinician that that's a really nice conversation to have with somebody who may not have had the conversation yet as for, because if you're not going to talk about how well re received you're feeling coming home uh, the reintegration process just you know how can it begin without um, uh, you getting some notion that uh, you know, my my uh, military experience is over, and in order for me to be at some level of peace, I psychologically do need to uh, go into the process of reintegrating myself back into civilian life. Right, and you're talking about the, the T word, right, that transition. I mean, transition is thrown around, you know, everybody talks about transition, but it really is uh, just like any other transition, but it's deciding to leave the military behind mm -hmm. and create a new life mm -hmm. um, and and many veterans again in my experience what I hear you saying is a lot of veterans will remain in that pre-transition mindset for a period of time uh, you and I were talking earlier it seems to be much less now but it's still years um, yes over, absolutely yeah. there's two things that you're making me think of one is how this whole conversation is a complex and multi-dimensional uh, topic, right? And the other thing is, is uh, I can't remember, but it, you might have said decide to leave the military. And, you know, that word alone is, 
so uh, complicated for each every, and every individual uh, member of the military who has served, you know, regardless of what their MOS was or, what, you know, what capacity they were in or the intensity of the combat that they were in. Um, and I'm just thinking if only it was that easy to, I'm going to decide that this is what I'm going right. to do, you know, and because I know that there are lots of veterans out there who would love to decide mm -hmm. to just be able to enjoy their life and you know without all the busyness and uh, the intensity and the overthinking and uh, you know the um, the environmental uh, factors that are involved with you know how do I know if I go to the grocery store or sit in this restaurant that you know I'm gonna be able to trust who's actually here um, it's a fascinating thing how the conditioning of our mind uh, can end up running how we operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that's the first, you have to have the awareness that you have the ability to decide, right? You know, we have to acknowledge that this is something that I have control over, and, and absolutely. many veterans don't. I yes, think. absolutely. Um, until we own it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we uh, and yes, that's true. I say we uh, because the veteran population is incredibly unique uh, mm -hmm. into itself, but from a trauma-informed perspective, it is trauma, um, and it needs to be looked at not, not exclusively um, through that lens, but if it can be even just a little bit, then I think um, veterans can... Uh, who veterans who in fact are very intelligent people and very capable of many many things uh, resiliency is one of them uh, can begin the process of realizing more about it and understanding it more and instead of going through a private hell um, you know get some resolve out of it right you know I wonder if you've seen uh, the, the veterans right now, I and mean, we haven't talked about sort of the era of <clears throat> veterans, but you started going into your VA, uh, a practicum and internship, 12 years ago. So we're talking about 2006, 2007, mm -hmm. maybe. Yes. Right? And that was, I think, when the first wave of, of new veterans started to come in. Yes. Um, when you first started at the VA, were you seeing younger veterans, or did you see a preponderance of Vietnam Cold War veterans? They were mostly Vietnam Cold War veterans. Yeah. Yeah. And how has that shifted for you as you've been working with veterans over these last 12 years? I would say in the last two years now, um, for my own uh, practice, uh, there have been, you know, one here and one there. But now um, it's a much higher percentage of the more recent vets who are coming back, uh, which really is a uh, fantastic thing. And, and so uh, you, and I'm interested, uh, those listeners, if you're long time, you know that I, I work in an urban corridor that I, I have um, uh, in, a, in a medium-sized city, um, but you work with rural veterans. Um, as you'd mentioned, you're sort of triangulated between a, a dead spot, if you will, of coverage. Um, how is it different, do you think, working with veterans um, when you're really sort of the only thing that they have? Um, excellent question. And I don't really have the perspective but I will, I will try to describe it to you. There, um, 
there tends to be a very these are th this is thematic okay that there uh, the isolation and the withdrawal and the loneliness um, gets to a point where um, my walls in my house are starting to cave in on me hmm. and that just is not a good scenario but the withdrawal is what they want, right? I mean, they, we, we all want that uh, five, ten acres with ten-foot walls and keep the world out. Um, you know, everybody wants that. And, and I say everybody, but, but a lot of veterans want that isolation. Um, and then when that isolation happens, they draw back. They don't anticipate the loneliness. They would think that I'm going to be comfortable on my little compound here. Um, and then they're not. Mm, correct. Yes. And uh, I uh, have had... Uh, many conversations with people, veterans, who, when you, when, when the conversation topic is psychosocial health, psycho, psycho, psychological health needs to be social. I mean, we as cultural beings need to, um, and so where do we begin to, um, kind of reprogram, reframe our mindset from uh, my battle buddies and this is what my culture used to be like in the military, which was very structured, very um, team-centered, very... Very uh, social. Yes, very social, but in a different way mm -hmm. because there's a lot of perspective now that um, out in civilian life, it's dog-eat-dog dog and every man for himself and I don't know where to fit in. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, and, and that's a, I don't know how to manage this, so I'm going to simply withdraw. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take a step back and, and retreat in, in many ways. Um, I, I think, in, and uh, as part of this, uh, for those of you listening, uh, um, I presented the documentary um, acronym, and in one of the scenes, and, and Tom saw it yesterday, but in one of the scenes that wasn't shown, um, they were talking about how horses are herd animals, right? And mm -hmm. if you take a horse and put them miles away in a pasture by themselves, um, then likely that, that horse will, will sicken and, and ultimately die, mm -hmm. you know, and because they are such a pack animal. Uh, and humans are likely the, the, the same, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if we withdraw ourselves and we put up all these barriers and the moats and the, you know, and, and everything else, um, then, then we're withdrawing ourselves from that societal thing. And so... Uh, in many ways, I think it's helpful. Yeah, it's unknown. I don't know how to figure it out, but you can figure it out. You figured it out in the military, but now you can figure this out too. Is it that, and I guess in my sense, and correct me if I'm wrong for the veterans, do they not know that they have that capability? Do they forget maybe that they have that capability? It becomes uh, two things. One, kind of an enmeshed, rigid thinking process, mm -hmm. right? Followed by um, a little bit of, now, I, I don't know, tell me if this isn't going to make sense, but when I'm in an intense environment, right, and there's things that are going on around me that I don't necessarily uh, like or that I think are bad, then when, it's, when that's over, I'm, it's, it's likely that I could be inclined to overcompensate that by becoming a little bit compulsive in my control. 
No, it's as when you said that, and I'm thinking of firefighters, or I'm thinking <clears throat> in very, um, we didn't retreat from them, but we tried to control them as much as we could. Mm -hmm. You know, overwhelming force, call for fire, uh, get the, the helicopters, the aircraft, the UAVs, it, let's, let's control this as much as we can. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, in those very intense moments, we, we did as much, and we feel frustrated if we can't exert control in yes. those moments. Right? Yes. So if we're pinned down... Uh, learned helplessness and all that. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and so then it's hard to transition that. And I'm thinking very specifically my, my, my tour in Afghanistan to now I'm a place where I, I can't control or I shouldn't control things. Uh, another quick story. Not to that degree. Right, not to that degree. But but it would be any shift away from control was, was uncomfortable. Sure. Um, uh, when I was in Iraq and I had a 15-month tour in Iraq, I had uh, I was one of the top two enlisted people in the company, a company of 130. Um, so usually, when I said something, people did it, right? You know, is it, it was the 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 you know operation sergeant says do. And so then uh, I, I went home on mid tour leave, uh, and then there's my wife and my kids. Uh, nobody would listen to me. Nobody would pay attention. The cats wouldn't listen to me. Not, I mean, and it was it was frustrating. I remember there was a conversation. I was and I was like telling my wife's like don't you know who I am like I pointed to my and she was like I don't care right yeah, but yeah. but there was that and, and and some of it was I couldn't shift away from because I had to go back to Iraq and so I had to keep that control mindset and then and so there's that whipsaw back and forth yeah uh, and then that just compounds and compounds <clears throat> you mentioned uh, learned helplessness mm -hmm. I think that's a really good way to describe so I'm just I'm just going to go for this scenario here where it's it's a firefight. Um, uh, it's it's maybe not going as well as it can. Um, I need to stay in the kind of control that is going to make sure that I'm doing my role to make sure my buddies are safe and that you know I'm not going to sit down on my job mm -hmm. right. Um, that when that kind of intensity. Uh, for any individual kind of sets into your mind that is incredibly powerful and if by chance that doesn't happen to go well it sets it up for what could be uh, considered um, in psychology involuntary defeat strategy right which actually is a form of um, learned helplessness uh, but what happens is if it happened once okay tragic or whatever bummer if it happened twice that's going to become incredibly impactful almost like in a conditioning sense if it happened three times then do you see you begin to literally take on this involuntary defeat strategy which is known to be one of the leading causes of depression so it's not that I stop playing to win I start playing to not lose Yes. Right. You know, and, and there's this and, and this is something that my veterans, I'm sure you've heard it. Um, you know, we uh, we hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Yes. Right? You know, yes. And, and and we stop at, at a certain point. We stop hoping for the best and we just simply plan for the worst. That's mm -hmm. why we got three AT4s and Claymores and everything. And we just assume that every time that we get out, we're going to get into a fight. And then that's it's very insightful of we then stop playing to win and we just play to not lose, and that's a, and that's a. It seems like a subtle shift, but it, you're right. That can, 
if I assume that I'm going to be defeated, that's my starting point, then that's going to keep me locked in that defeated mindset. Yes, it will. And if you transfer that from the battlefield to the living room couch, then the curtains are closed. And I'm sorry, I'm just, I can't seem to get up from the couch. In employment, right? You know, I'm going to go into an interview. I'm assuming they're not going to give me the job. That's the the, the involuntary defeat strategy. That's a defeat mindset, right? You yes, know, it I is. Am, I am not. I'm going to go to the VA. They're not going to listen to me. I'm, and it reminds like it's this me. Negative. Yes, yes. I, I'm so that's sorry. Good. But this is. Uh, you know, when I start interrupting, I'm getting passionate. That's good. About no, this. that's what this is about. And so uh, it's it's also uh, includes um, the po- the power of attraction. Mm-hmm. You know, the power of attraction, mm-hmm. where if you're thinking the outcome before it even has a chance to play out, there is this power that, okay, well, if that's what you're thinking, then self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, be careful, ways, what, you, right? be careful you know? what you're thinking. And, and this is something even with that. So that pessimistic mindset, that yes. negative outlook. Right, right, right. For someone who's naturally optimistic, and, and um, as we're talking about learned helplessness, <clears throat> of course, this is Seligman, and I've, <coughs> I've written about this. I'll leave uh, um, links to that in the show notes. Um, but, but this is the idea of um, if I'm a natural optimist, and I, I don't know how to be a pessimist, and so when I start thinking neg- negatively, it's uncomfortable for me. It's sort of like a, a pessimist that has good things happening. It's uncomfortable for them. And so if someone has a naturally skilled and positive outlook but gets worn down through learned helplessness, uh, through this defeat mindset, yeah. they're not used to, to operating like that. No. And they get uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and to take that one step further, the people that know them, like if a, if a veteran is deployed, they come back, they are a little bit defeated. They're just, you know, oh, my God, you know, uh, Greg is just not the same. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And the family completely um, uh, doesn't uh, understand it. And it's not really going to be articulated as to what, you know, has gone on. Because Greg isn't going to talk about no. it. His wife's not going to talk about it. The kids aren't going to ask about it. Right. And so it's just this big uh, unspoken thing that's in the middle of the house, and it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. I, I recall that that was one of the things that my father, Vietnam veteran, before I went to Iraq, he, he looked, you know, sat me down and, and said, uh, when you get back, talk to your wife. Because that's probably, and it's not the only thing that, that, that ended up, you know, messing between him and my mom. But he said that was a big thing is when I came back from Vietnam, it was nothing. It, you know, it didn't, ha- you know, he really kept it to himself. Um, and and uh, I see a lot of the same thing. You know, uh, spouses aren't familiar enough with this. They don't understand this. They see the movies. They, you know, uh, in, in, and so the caregivers become more isolated or the spouses become more isolated. Um, we saw that again in the movie yesterday. That spouse said she kept it to herself, um, that her husband had PTSD. Mm-hmm. She didn't want anybody else to know. That well, there was a shame associated right, with it. Right. And it's just incredible how many people, I just write it on a little sticky note, Renee Brown, you go look at those videos, yeah. you know, on vulnerability and shame, and they come back to the office and go, oh, my gosh, my perspective is completely different. And I go, now, take this. Take this and really work with it. Because if you, it's, you know what we're talking about? Trust. No, absolutely. Yeah. 
um, and the ability to be able to trust. But we're also, it's incredible because I'm just kind of thinking, um, I'm sitting with a very like-minded individual and, you know, we have this, what we do in common. Um, and for the listeners to just experience the meandering of the conversation, you know, from one thing to another to another. Um, but not only does when you come back not saying anything, it's it it spills over into all kinds of um, children walking on eggshells. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and the, but the, it's not even really being thought of or considered. You know, but when those kids grow up, uh, they're it's going to affect them. Mm -hmm. That you know, the tension and the vibe of the house just wasn't uh, nobody said anything and boy I know there was a lot going on um, so yes uh, I don't want to burden my wife and I'm sorry if this sounds sexist because I know that there's women veterans as well and uh, you know they it, it's just it's just I'm nobody's I'm never gonna disclose this because it's just too much for me to have to say uh, and, or and it, it's good that you bring up uh, women veterans, um, a, a portion, uh, I think a significant portion, I don't have the exact numbers, but they're dual military, right? And so she's a combat veteran, he's a combat veteran, and so there's no need to talk to each other about this because we both kind of know, even though everybody has a unique experience, mm -hmm. right? I, I, I experienced that in the, the counseling session where a veteran will say, they'll start to get into their story and they'll say, oh, yeah, but you were there, you know what it means, right? And that's a way for them to draw back away from something that's that's vulnerable for them to talk about. Right. And I'll say, I know what I experienced, but I need to hear what you experienced and, and see what it was for you. Yes. Um, but a lot of times, combat vets will sort of like pass in the night, like, oh, they'll get to a certain point in the story and then they'd be like, and you know what happened next. Yes. And then they'll pick it up on the other side mm -hmm. of that. That's and, the last place they should stop. Right, too. exactly. Yeah. And it's that's the space. Yes. And and so there's this natural, not only is it a, a physical withdrawal, it's it's sort of trying to navigate through these minefields in our, our minds yeah. and our past. It becomes a form of avoidance. Exactly. And uh, you know what we're talking about is is uh, uh, the psychodynamic properties of uh, talk, and, and I'm, I'm so inclined to say talk therapy, mm -hmm. but it doesn't even need to be therapy. It doesn't need to be in a therapeutic setting. It doesn't need to be, it just needs to be with a trusted individual. When we, psychodynamic means I'm talking, but my ears are hearing the words come out of my mouth and then my brain is tr trying to really work what I'm going to say next, but I'm hearing it. And then it turns into like a qualifier to validate, is this even my truth? Right. I, I, I explain it to my veterans in that when you get it out of your head, in whatever way you get it out of your head, if you speak it out loud, then you can validate it or, or invalidate yes. it. Yes. If you get it out of your head and you write it down, if you get it out of your head and record it like we're doing here, get it out of your head and play a song. But if you get it out of your head and you're able, and it's actually out here in the world, you're able to see the shape of it, the truth of it mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, not, it's becoming common for my practice mm -hmm. where veterans come in and thank God, I there somehow there is able to be established a, a good relationship. Um, clinically, we'd call it a therapeutic alliance. Um, whereas 
they do start talking and they become emotional and it's safe and when they leave they aren't the hugging kind of person mm -hmm. but they are so just I don't know what it is I, I guess we'd have to ask each of them what what is it that's causing you to be so so um maybe gratified or whatever but yeah, what it's, it's relief it's, yeah there's, it's a there's relief reliefs, yes you know? yes because you know and then oftentimes I'm sure you hear this as well I've never told anybody this exactly right and and I and sometimes I can't help but reply oh my goodness to hold that in and I know it's it's exhausting and it's energy intensive mm -hmm. not as much to let it out but to hold, to it, hold in. it in yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I describe it as, uh, um, you know, a mind fist, right? We, we, we can't physically grip a fist for very long. You know, maybe I, I had a veteran one time where um, I asked him, how long do you think you could hold your fist as tight? He was like, oh, I can do it for three minutes. Like he didn't make it 45 seconds, right? But that's what we do with our minds, right? That's what some veterans do with their minds. They just grip it and grip it and grip it and they hold on to it. Uh, and, they, and, and it becomes exhausting. And then there is almost a physical relief uh, yeah. in many ways. Yes, yes. Do you find, and again, this is, it interests me because seeing rural veterans, um, but do you find veterans are resistant to the fact that you're not a veteran or um, does it even come up? How, how is that? I think it's only come up once or twice. Mm -hmm. You know, I was born in 1958, right? And in... All of the whole draft, 58 and 59, were, you guys, you, we don't need a draft, so you don't have to register. And so, well, I didn't. And I did grow up where uh, Dan Rather was in L.A. at that point, and I grew up in SoCal, and, and there I was with my family trying to eat spaghetti it, with blood and guts on uh, the Vietnam War. Nine or ten years old. Yeah. 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 So, um, uh you know, uh, there's a book, Robert Bly by, uh, no, Iron John by Robert Bly. And it talks about uh, these uh, parts of every grown man. And there's a sensitive little boy, an explorer, a wild man, and a king in, in uh, every grown man. And, I th and, and they, sh they should always be alive. That you know, the, the sensitive little boy is an endearing quality. Uh, the explorer is what keeps us from boredom. Um, a wild man is alpha male. Um, and a king is when we're a mature adult who can behave accordingly, you know, with, with being kind of the head of our family and, and kind of in control of our lives. Um, so there's enough diversity there, you know what I mean? Uh, that um, when people uh, come to me and no, it really rarely comes up. It, I mean, it, it just doesn't seem to be uh, an issue. I think what they're looking for really might be, and you said this just an hour ago, that if they are going to be able to appreciate the benefit of having somebody sit with them in a private place where they can speak freely and actually be listened to, um, that's just 
I don't care what context you apply that, it's going to be beneficial. So and, and what I hear in that is that uh, once a veteran makes the decision that I'm actually going to reach out and sit down and talk to somebody, who that person is really doesn't matter. And so when I hear the veterans who say, I'm not going to go see anybody unless there's a combat vet, they may not be the point where they're actually going to sit down and talk to anybody. And I've seen that, right, where, well, I say, okay, I'm a combat vet. Give me a call. And they don't because, and I've said it before on the show here, a veteran doesn't need a real good reason to avoid therapy. Any reason could be a good reason. Um, and, and it's in, encouraging to hear that the veterans that you've worked with over the last 12 years haven't made it the issue. I think you were, you were telling me before that some were just saying, I'm tired of being this way or I'm tired of living like this. Right. I feel stuck. Yeah. seems to be something that comes up. Um, yeah, we can come up with, with excuses for anything, um, but it is a, it is a, a simple type of avoidance that, that it's, I'm not their person and it's not going to be their time. Um, but uh, I've done uh, incredible work with hundreds of veterans, I think, at this point, uh, because really now at this point in my uh, career, my practice, um, I'd have to say I'm fo focusing the largest percentage, percentage of it on veterans. So uh, that should just simply not be an issue. Right. And I, I really don't feel like it. I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about it right now. But, you know, when a brand new veteran who's been out in my lobby, it's time for them to come through the door. They're not thinking about whether they care who, you know, they just want to have a, a reasonably competent uh, counselor who can um, try to relate to who they are. And, and so even picking that up, I mean, a reasonably competent counselor, uh, somebody that takes the time to understand veterans, right? Mm -hmm. Takes the time to understand the experience of veterans. Again, and uh, going back to our earlier conversation from before we started recording, of, uh, you know, I came from the military side and I learned clinical skills. Um, you develop clinical skills and then learn the, the military uh, aspect of it. Um, it. That's another big thing that, again, as we're here, mental health professionals who, need, who are going to work with veterans need to understand the unique nature of veteran culture. There is no question about it. It's... it's uh, um um, I, uh, it's, it's, it's almost, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it, but you know, for me personally, it's been in my heart. And so therefore I was curious and I was interested in knowing something that I wasn't really that aware of. And it's, it's, I'm still learning it. You know what I mean? I'm still interested in it. I'm still trying to pick up every little tidbit that I can. Um, it's interesting because uh, any counselor is going to start developing themes. If you're a child play therapist, if you're, you know, somebody who, you know, does um, pastoral counseling, it, it doesn't really matter what type of counseling that you're doing. If you become, uh, if you're a lifelong learner and you're continuing your education and you, you focus on your population, then you are going to pick up some of the necessary themes that are involved um, that can help your population um, connect with you. No, and, and I think that's very important. It, it comes to mind some of our <clears throat> colleagues who 
um, well, I know trauma, and so therefore I should be able to, you know, veterans, you know, went through trauma. I know trauma, so veterans are right for me. And it's not a one-to-one, but, but they believe that, I mean, there's a rigidity. I mean, we're humans. We believe in what we know. Um, but if somebody is so comfortable as, as maybe requiring the veteran to change to the way they view things rather than adapting the way they view things to the veteran, that can get in the way. You know, there, uh, it's, it's a cultural competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we are uh, fully f- uh, aware of multicultural competencies. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, there's the African-American population, the Native American population. There's the uh, LGBT, you know, and they all do have their um, idiosyncratic nuances, you know, of, of how they operate. I'll give you a good example of how, um, for me, veterans uh, uh, get a pass on something because it's just, I'm not going to, that's not going to be an issue for me. That if someone is coming to me and they have complex PTSD, um, maybe even coupled with a traumatic brain injury, um, they miss their appointment. That's okay. You know, that's, uh, you know. Joe, I don't, it's okay, you know? Oh, but I'm so sorry I missed it. Please don't, please don't um, drop me as a client, Mm -hmm. you know? I'm not going to, you know? And um, just lo and behold, their next appointment we put on the calendar, oh my God, they missed it. Joe, it's okay. Um, And it's always going to be okay. And I think that kind of... um, flexibility just gets at it just adds to the comfort well thank you thank you so much for that because I was really really worried and it's like no no it's okay I I mean I'm not gonna get so rigid that I'm gonna expect you to and I know the VA does that you know because we will yeah and many you know private providers do that I mean and 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 this is a uh, an issue of you know a dead hour or things like that you know I mean it's but but not every veteran is going to do that and so they think that if they can't make allowances for some uh, one of the I mean that's not judgmentalness right that's that's not being so rigid that I'm going to judge you um, is I think I'd mentioned to you before I, I work with a lot of justice involved veterans oh. some of my colleagues yes were, were saying I'm not going to deal with criminals I, I don't want to you know I mean and I'm like you're a therapist yeah you're a, you're a mental health professional right. and, but you but you exclude this population where I'm one bad decision away from being in the same boat as these I mean there's any of us can be in in you know that kind of situation um, but then there's that that rigidity and judgmentalness and and just uh, assuming that we know the culture, um, assuming that we understand a veteran, again, because maybe we watched a, a movie or, or read a book or something like that. Yeah. And with the luxury of having the insights into what their life is really like, because, you know, counselors do end up learning a lot about an individual. Um and you know that they may have a chaotic household or you know that they're, you know, they're just not think, you know, thinking about it. Um, and TBI is real, you know, is, and yeah. they, you know, how many veterans are, um, well, you know, my memory just isn't what it used to be. 
I, my memory, and I don't have a, a documented TBI, but my memory is not what it used to be. Sure. You know, I mean, and, and, and there is a lot. Of, and one of the things, and specifically talking about TBI, and listeners, you know, we did the uh, Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp. Dr. Blair Cano talked about TBI, but it's the crack that runs through everything else, you know. So if they're struggling with PTSD and substance abuse and emotional dysregulation because of uh, the defeatist thinking and things, lack of purpose and moral injury, those are all vertical cracks. But TBI will go across all of those and complicate them yes. and, and, and amplify the, the challenges. Yes, it will. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is uh, this has been great, Tom. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity if the listeners want to know more about you. Do you have a website? Maybe social media? Anything where where if you ha- if there is a veteran in Oregon that might be interested in uh, finding out more about you, how can they get a hold of you? That's a really good. Uh, thank you for that opportunity. Um, one of the things that I'm doing a lot of now is. Uh, um, I've become very adept at helping veterans get authorizations through the VA Choice Program. And I also am doing a lot of tele-mental health or video conferencing uh, counseling, which gives you some sort of a face-to-face, n- not required, if you'd like to just uh, have a phone call. And um, so my website is uh, www.people.com solutions.us p-e-o-p-l-e dash s-o-l-u-t-i-o-n-s dot u-s um, and uh, anybody is welcome to contact me through that or you know well, to date uh, this is a stretch because if, if this had a population where it's like oh my god 30 uh, veterans in Oregon um, and I do really pride myself on I have never turned a veteran away um, and I, I kind of hope that day never comes. Yeah. It's, it's, well, I'll make sure that, uh, that that website gets in the show notes uh, and people can find that. Uh, any last thoughts before we sign off? No. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. I, I could talk to you all afternoon about this. That's, uh, that's usually how these go. We can, yeah. really, uh, we can go down rabbit holes. But thank you. My pleasure. You're listening to Headspace and Timing on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. A great episode where Tom and I really get into what we're talking about. One of the things I'd like to bring out is Tom's experience in which most veterans he's worked with don't really mind that he's not a veteran. I know this isn't common for all veterans, but some say that they feel like they won't be able to talk to someone unless they've been in the military. But Tom's experience in clinical counseling compensates for the fact that he didn't serve in the military. It's another case of creating our own barriers for treatment. The more we're willing to give it a shot, the easier it's going to be. Another point that Tom brought out is the importance of trust in mental health counseling. This is the most critical aspect of beneficial treatment, whether or not the veteran trusts the counselor in the process. If you're a veteran and you're listening to this, you might have had a negative experience with a mental health professional. Don't let that stop you. Keep going until you find a therapist that works for you. For those of you who are mental health professionals, you know this, but it's important to emphasize. Veterans, maybe more than most clients, significantly rely on trust to build a therapeutic relationship. There are a few shortcuts to building this trust, and it takes time. 
One of the most important things that I try to develop with my clients is the trust that I can handle their stories, that I have the clinical training and experience to help them untangle some knots, and that our time together is going to be helpful rather than harmful. Finally, one of the most interesting points I took away from our conversation is Tom's description of the involuntary defeat strategy. If we accumulate enough missteps or mistakes in our lives, then we're going to be more likely to anticipate failures when it's not inevitable or be more cautious than we need to be in engaging in social situations. According to a book titled Subordination and Defeat, written in the year 2000, involuntary defeat strategy is described as genetically programmed response pattern that inhibits aggression and promotes reconciliation in the face of defeat. IDS is triggered when someone senses that they're losing or are going to lose an antagonistic encounter. Anger is inhibited by generating feelings of inferiority, shame, worthlessness, sadness, and so on. This certainly seems to be true in actual situations in which there is a win-loss scenario, but can also happen when veterans perceive defeat where no antagonism exists or when defeat is not certain. It's an interesting concept that I'm going to be exploring further, and you might find it interesting to explore further as well. As you know, for the last couple of months, I've been giving away free books to organizations that partner directly with veterans. In April, we provided nine books to the Colorado Springs Veteran Trauma Court. In May, 10 books went to Coder Vets, a 501c3 nonprofit that provides technical training to transitional veterans. This month's partner is Inner Resource Psychotherapy, and the owner of the practice, Amy Otzel, is an OIF veteran like me. Amy and I had a conversation about her work and what she plans to do with the books, so stay tuned for that next week. If you want to support Amy's work regarding veterans and mental health, head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash combat vet book and pick up a copy. And one last reminder, if you have an Echo device, we're on Amazon as well. Just go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash Alexa to add an update to your daily briefing and you'll get daily updates about veteran mental health and wellness. And every once in a while, you could get a chance to get a free copy of the book too. Just listen daily to check it out. I'd like to thank the Change Your POV Podcast Network for hosting this show and highlighting the critical importance of veteran mental health. We want to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email at duane at veteranmentalhealth.com. You can find me at Twitter at The Counseling Vet or head on over to Facebook and look for the Change Your POV Squad. You can find the show notes for this episode and all the episodes by going to veteranmentalhealth.com or changeyourpov.com. Sign up for updates on either or both so you don't miss another episode. While you're at it, check out the other great shows in the Change Your POV podcast network. The show about remembering our military history and reviving our warrior spirit, changing hearts and minds. The show about outdoor activities that us veterans love so much, Neophyte in the Woods. The show that helps us get going at the beginning of the week, Motivation Monday. And Attack Fridays, the show that brings you actionable tips, tricks, and coachable knowledge to help you make the best of your transition. While you're checking out the other shows, drop us a review in iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. The reviews really help spread the word about what we're doing. If you're looking for the total package for all the information you need to live the life you want after leaving the military, you found it. If you know of a buddy who's looking for the same info, share it with them so they can find it too. I want to thank Doc Todd for his permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc Todd is somebody who's trying to bring veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can get the album by going to therealdoctod.com. Check it out, because remember, veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but
with bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones. I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies, broke out facilities that try to put an end to me. RIP, I'd rather grind in tranquility. Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.